Hello and welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Mark Hopwood. With us today is Gabriel Richardson-Lear, professor of philosophy at the University of Chicago, and she's here to talk to us about Plato's philosophy of poetry. Gabriel Richardson-Lear, welcome. Thank you for having me. So I thought we might begin with some background before getting to Plato's actual argument about poetry. One thing we might begin by talking about is what poetry meant in the ancient Greek world. Did poetry mean the same thing for the ancient Greeks that it means to us today? Well, actually, the classification that Plato talks about is called musike, and that includes not just what we would think of as poetry, but also the music that went with it. Um, So musike includes both the verbal component as well as what we would think of as the musical component. And that's really what Plato addresses. So it includes the Iliad and other epic poems. It also includes choral lyric poems, what we think of when we think of poetry. But I'd say probably the biggest difference between the Greek experience of poetry and ours is that for them it was usually a performative context for poetry, whereas for us we often think of poetry as something you read privately by yourself. So it might be natural for us when we're reading about poetry to think of relaxing in a comfortable armchair with a small volume of T.S. Eliot. Mm -hmm. But really what Plato has in mind is something very different. This is a public activity, one that the general population would enjoy and be involved in, and one that might involve all kinds of aspects other than those that we would normally associate with poetry. That's right. Yeah. So various genres of what we would include in poetry, lyric poems, epic poems, and also I forgot to mention tragedies and comedies. Plato seemed to think that he had discovered some original distinctions with regard to poetry and his theory of poetry. In particular, he talks about a distinction between style and content, which he seems to view as really his innovation. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that. How does Plato think about the distinction between style and content in poetry? The contrast between content and style first is the issue of distinguishing the story, that's the content, versus the way in which the poet tells the story. Is he going to narrate as himself, Plato says, so that it's sort of what we would think of as just telling the story, or is he going to tell the story through direct dialogue, speaking in the voices of the different characters? Then once he has that distinction in place between direct dialogue and plain narration, he then talks about different styles of combining those different styles of narrating. So either you can have a purely plain style in which the poet tells a story from beginning to end in his own voice, or you can have a purely mimetic style in which you're always, everything is in direct dialogue, that would be drama. Or you can have a mixture of these two modes of narration in which sometimes the poet narrates directly and sometimes he speaks in dialogue. And that would be typical of epic poetry. Plato thought apparently that this difference between two kinds of narration, direct dialogue versus plain narration, had some ethical consequences. So in order to get to that, maybe it would be worthwhile to talk a bit about Plato's belief in ethics that one's life has to be lived in a unified way, that one's aims in life should be unified. What was his view roughly about that? Well, this is really how I got into this topic of Plato's poetics and aesthetics. Plato and Aristotle after him both thought that a good human life was highly unified. 
it had a single goal so that you could say what the life was about. Was it about political honor? Or was it about pleasure? Or, as they both thought it should be, was it about contemplation of the sort of eternal truths of the cosmos? They thought that a good life is one in which you figure out what is the best human good and then aim your whole life at that target. And I wondered why they have this intuition that a good life is so unified, because it seems to me that we often think, well, I think that actually we're conflicted about this. On the one hand, I think we share this ancient intuition that you should be one thing and live a sort of unified life. On the other hand, we also praise people for having a variety of interests, and we would think there was something wrong about trying to subordinate one of those interests to another. So we, we value the kind of Renaissance man. And so I wanted to try to understand why Plato and Aristotle both think that a good life is one and that a successful human being is one. And what I realized is that Plato thinks the effect of being exposed to bad poetry is that you become a multiple person. That, he says, is what happens to you. Instead of being one thing, you try to be many things. And so I thought that in order to understand the value of unity and actually what unity amounted to for Plato, I would kind of take this indirect route of trying to understand what this multiplicity is that is instilled by poetry. And one thing that I discovered was that it's not just that bad poetry, by which he means the poetry that the ancient Greeks are most famous for, it's not just that this poetry makes you multifarious, but that the poet of this poetry is himself sort of a exemplar or paradigm of the sort of multiplicity which he instills. So that it's not just that these poets make people multifarious, it's that they make them like the poets, so that poets are kind of creating their audience in their image. And that led me to the belief that what Plato is criticizing in The Republic and in many other dialogues is not just poems taken as separable products of the poet, but poetic activity itself, which of course culminates in these poems. It's interesting you mentioned that our intuitions tend to be pulled in several directions. On the one hand, we value someone becoming an expert in a particular area. On the other hand, we also value Renaissance men. Mm -hmm. And I mean, one thing that jumped to mind is that Aristotle himself innovated in so many different areas. So I'm wondering, like, wherein lies this distinction between, as it were, unity through plurality or unity in plurality and what Plato's objecting to? Yeah, I think it might be easiest to see that what he's what Plato is objecting to is pursuing different activities which make you different people. So each kind of person is going to express what he is through a whole variety of activities. So think of the case of a, a craftsman, which is Plato's favorite example. If you are a shoemaker, you have to do a whole bunch of different things as a shoemaker. You have to cut leather, you sew it together, and not only that, you also have to figure out how to get your shoes to the customer, you have to build up relationships. There are all different kinds of things that you do as a shoemaker, but they're all ways of expressing that identity. What Plato objects to is the having different identities, being different kinds of people. And I think to sort of move it to a contemporary 
setting in which I think we can get some intuition of why this might actually look like a problem, I think a lot of women have felt the pressure both to be professional women, have professional careers, and also to be mothers, where it seems as if it's hard to figure out how you can be both at once. Now, you know, we might hope, I mean, I do believe that this is possible, that the conceptions both of motherhood and of professional career can adapt so that they can be expressions of a single identity. But it has historically been felt as a problem how you can be these two different things at once. Some people might say, hey, go ahead and be different things at once. And in fact, if you think of your life as a long span, first, why not go in for one career and then go in for another? Why not have multiple identities? That's the sort of thing that Plato thinks is bad. Um, You shouldn't try to be different things. When he says that you should do one thing, he doesn't mean that you should engage in a single kind of activity in some very narrow sense, like all you should do is hit tennis balls all day or something like that. He really means that you should be doing activity that expresses a single identity. That seems like a nice kind of example to use, the example of the different identities that one might have in modern life, because that is the kind of thing that people say. So if I were to ask someone, well, don't you think really you have to make a choice between being a mother and being a professional, I can imagine someone replying, well, what I need you to see is not just that I can be these two different things at once. It's that I'm not fundamentally seeing these as two different things. You're only going to understand me when you understand both of these activities as expressions of a unified identity. I'm not going to be fully myself without doing both of these things. So that's making Plato a little bit more comprehensible for Mm -hmm. us. That makes this whole idea look a little bit less alien than it might appear. But what about this connection with poetry Mm -hmm. now? Because that still seems quite alien. Mm -hmm. We think poetry's great. We try to get our children to read it wherever possible. We put it in the school curriculum. We generally think of someone who reads a lot of poetry as someone who's more likely to be living the kind of life that Mm -hmm. we like to be living. So why is it not possible for the poet to be a unified kind of character Mm -hmm. in this way. What's wrong with poetry in that respect? Well, the first thing to say is that Plato did not want to get rid of all poetry. He actually thinks that poetry is crucial in moral development. And that's because at the end of the day, he thinks of poetry as a form of play. And he thinks that children grow up to be adults by playing and that there's a sort of childlike element to all of us that really never stops playing. So he thinks you need to reform poetry so that it can serve the purposes of helping children and adults become unified people. But that reform of poetry is something he thinks has to come from the outside. Poetry, by its own nature, tends towards multiplicity. I think what he has in mind, at first glance, is this. So remember that poetry has a performative context for Plato. And Plato doesn't firmly distinguish the poet and the performer in a way that we might think is crucial. So if you are Homer and you're writing the Iliad, First you speak as Homer, and then you pretend to be Agamemnon, and then you pretend to be Achilles, and then you pretend to be Helen, and then you pretend to be Athena. So you're speaking in the voices of lots of different people. And he thinks that the poet is somebody who becomes very good at making himself seem like a variety of different kinds of people. 
And he thinks that through exposure to that sort of poetry, we come to enjoy doing the same thing. Now, the question is, well, look, the poet is only pretending to be lots of many people. Why think that he's actually many things rather than just pretending or appearing to be many things? And I think that, at the end of the day, gets to the heart of Plato's critique, because he thinks that when you seek to be many things, in fact, you're only appearing to be many. You're not, in fact, any one thing at all. So it's not that the poet is somebody who is one thing, namely an artisan who's good at appearing to be many. Rather, Plato thinks of him as somebody who's very adept at being many, but is not, in fact, any one thing at all. And so he thinks that we develop the taste for a variety in the way that we speak and act by exposure to poetry. One thing you've written about with regard to Plato's view of poets is the question of pleasure and what kind of a role that plays for the poet. One thing that you said right at the start was that poetry for the Greeks was this public art form. It was, mm. it was there for entertainment. And Plato seems to think, on your account, that the poet has some kind of peculiar relation to pleasure. And that's mm. part of what's dangerous about poetry and what leads to this kind of multiplicity. So maybe you could say something about that. Yeah. Um, Plato does think that the poets aim to give pleasure. And that can look like a very uncharitable description of poetry, but in fact, I don't think that it is. There's been a wonderful dissertation in progress here at the University of Chicago by Rana Liebert in the Classics Department, which shows that in fact this vision of poets as master producers of a pleasure that's addictive and deliciously sweet is in fact a conception of poetry that the archaic poets themselves had. And Plato is just picking up on that. And I think that this idea that aesthetic pleasure is a crucial aspect of a poem or the reception of a poem has obviously had a very long life. So I don't think that Plato is obviously being unfair to the poets when he thinks of them as aiming at producing a sort of pleasure. Now, what is the problem with that? Well, I said before that Plato thinks we should be one thing, and that means that we should engage in a sort of web of activity that expresses a single identity. But that still leaves it open. Well, what is it to be one? What is it to have a single identity? And I think he thinks of this in deliberative terms. The issue is, what is the deliberative goal of your activity? As he puts it, what are you looking to when you make your decisions, as you deliberate about what to do? And the poet, he thinks, is somebody who looks to pleasure as he deliberates. So you might think, okay, well, the poet is somebody who appears to be many people, appearances which nobody is actually fooled by, but what he really is is somebody who pursues pleasure. He is a master pleasure provider. But Plato does not think that the sort of pleasure that comes from appearances is really a genuine deliberative goal. He thinks it's only apparent. The sort of pleasure that poetry can provide, crazy as this may seem, he thinks is not genuinely pleasure at all. When you talk about Plato's attitudes towards poetry, on the one hand, he's such a literary genius. He clearly had a feeling for poetry, but the things he says sound so outrageous. And so not only is the poet not actually any one thing, but is just somebody who pretends to be many things, but he's aiming at a sort of pleasure, which turns out to be no real pleasure at all. What I think that he has in mind is this. Pleasure 
is for Plato a kind of perceptual awareness that the person is moving towards the good, moving in a good direction, and in particular is being filled with good things. So we tend to think of pleasure as just an experience that doesn't have any meaning. It can be a sign of something, but we don't think of it as having a meaning. But for Plato, he thinks of pleasure as being more representational. It's that condition of awareness by which it seems to us that things are going well for us, and in particular that we're being filled. Now once you think of pleasure as having that sort of representational content, then pleasures can be false. It can seem to you that things are going well when in fact things are going badly. It can seem to you that you're being filled with good things when in fact you're not being filled with good things. And Plato thinks that the sort of pleasure that poetry gives us is this false appearance that somehow we're being nourished and filled with good things by what we're seeing when in fact that isn't what's happening at all. At best, we're being kept in a state of equilibrium. Maybe things aren't getting worse for us, but it's not that we're actually moving into a better condition. Earlier on, we were thinking about a cobbler. Mm -hmm. And a cobbler, maybe at first blush, seems to do many different things. A cobbler both has to cure leather and hammer nails into the sole of the shoe and so on and so forth. But actually, these various activities are unified under the heading of cobbler. The appearance of plurality there is illusory. So then there's the question, why can't we say the same thing about the poet? Isn't the poet taking on all these different voices, only the appearance of many different things, but really falling under the heading of poetic performance or something Mm -hmm. to that effect? Maybe it has something to do with this point you're making about the poet claiming to elicit pleasure in his audiences but failing to. Well, I think the reason all the various activities of a cobbler all count as ways of doing one thing is not just that they fall under the heading of cobbling, it's that they're all aimed at making shoes. So they have, you know, as Plato would say, the form of the shoe as the thing that the cobbler is looking to in every case. So the unity there is the unity of being directed towards a single telos. It's not that Plato thinks that the cobbler has knowledge of the form of the shoe, but he's aimed at it. It's not that he has some sort of philosophical understanding of it. It's just that he's aimed at it. Everything he's, he does is with an eye to thinking about what a shoe is, namely something that has to protect the foot against the elements. So you might think that the poet is doing the same thing, that he's always aiming at some kind of aesthetic pleasure and all the various things that he's doing. But that aesthetic pleasure is not something that's really real for Plato. I mean, it exists. It's not that it doesn't exist but it's not a genuine article. It is itself an illusion of something else that's really real. And so given that it's like that, it's not the kind of thing that can serve as a unifying goal for all of the poet's activity. At best, he's engaged in mimicking to bring about an apparent end. But then because this end is itself only an appearance of pleasure, it's no surprise that the poet has to constantly be changing the appearances he's creating in order to sustain it. It isn't something that has its sort of foothold in reality, independent of our subjectivity. And so it's no wonder that in order to sustain that experience in the audience, the poet has to become involved in ever more multifarious appearance making. So that's what he thinks the poet is doing. And then we translate, well, what does it mean to act like a poet in real life? And here I think maybe his view has more plausibility to it, whatever you think about it as an analysis of poetry. 
namely that if you're aiming at just the feeling of doing well rather than the sort of actual fact with some contentful structure to it of what well-being is, but only that experience of doing well, then it's no surprise if you find people you know, as he says, acting like an athlete. He thinks this is his description of what he calls the democratic man who one day goes in for bodybuilding. And he does that for a while, but he's not really committed to the goal of bodybuilding. He's committed only to having the feeling of achieving the goal of bodybuilding. And then that sort of is going to peter out. So, okay, the next day he'll go in for philosophy and he'll do that for a while. And so that when people aim at this feeling that doesn't have its grounding in something real, Plato thinks you're going to have a tendency to cycle through different lifestyles, we might say. But it's not that you're actually really leading any of those lives. You're only seeming to. And that's because you're not really aimed at the telos, the goal of those lives, but only at the feeling of pleasure that attends actually achieving the goal. So it's always very tempting with a figure like Plato to try to relate his views to those features of modern life that we're most familiar with. Mm -hmm. And maybe there's dangers of doing that because he's living in a society very different from ours. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to go ahead and do it and then you tell me what you think. So a couple of things that you've said about Plato's view is that he's particularly concerned with action that just seeks after pleasure. Mm -hmm. And it's a kind of pleasure that's, in a certain sense, illusory, Mm -hmm. in that it's not an indicator of what's really good for us. It's a pleasure that's fleeting. Mm -hmm. And it's a pleasure that constantly needs replenishing through variation, Mm -hmm. something new, something different. That might sound to a lot of people like a fairly plausible criticism of popular culture Mm -hmm. and advertising, Mm -hmm. that this is precisely how our society runs, that Mm -hmm. we're advertised to on the basis that if we drink this drink, if we eat this burger, that we buy these tennis shoes, that Mm -hmm. we do any of these things, we will be like Michael Jordan Mm -hmm. or whoever else. And we do it, but we do one thing after another. And we have to do one thing after another because they have to keep selling us something. Mm -hmm. So you might think that this commonly cited sense of a lack of an emptiness Mm. in modern life is something that Plato somehow thousands of years ago is really onto, that this is something you might even say he predicted. Mm. Does that seem like a plausible kind of comparison to make or are there differences? I mean, it's an analysis of the importance of Plato that certainly has been made. And I think many students, when they read Plato's description of the democratic man in Republic Book 8, are sort of struck by how much this democratic figure sounds like a figure of contemporary society. And furthermore, people have drawn the analogy between the criticisms Plato makes of Homer and the sort of criticisms people make of popular culture as being somehow shallow, representing ways of life as glorious that in fact are not glorious. I'm not sure that anybody has quite seen this connection between the variety of poetry and the sort of various images of the good life that advertising promotes to us, but I think that that's quite a plausible view, that there is that connection there. One difference is going to be in what you think the remedy is for this. Plato's view is really very austere. He thinks that really at the end of the day, the only sort of goal that could actually have the stability capable of unifying a soul and a life is the intelligible reality. 
so that really for him it's going to be the firm control of reason over the sorts of appetites and other non-rational desires that delight in these images of advertising. Those are going to have to be ruled by a reason which isn't just calculating about how best to satisfy all our different desires, but instead is engaged in a quest for the really real and the true. Actually, now that I think of it, that might be a description of the good life that many people now would embrace. It does have some similarities to a religious life, you might think, that what you need to do is try to get your mind on the sort of one being that really is really real and order your life to it. And even if you're not a theist, you might think that there's some sort of intelligible structure that's the thing that we ought to be aiming at. Truth is what we should be aiming at. Still, it's a pretty austere vision, and I'm not sure how far we want to go there. I mean, in terms of whether I think that Plato's analysis of the effect of poetry is correct, I think it's true that, I mean, I agree with him that there is more danger in engaging in the pleasures of artistic representation than we might like to admit, whether those be sort of popular culture things or even high culture, that you might think it does instill a desire for variety for its own sake, which isn't something really to be lauded. But on the other hand, I don't think that Plato really understood the various purposes of play. He saw that engaging with poetry was a kind of play for the non-rational parts of the soul, ways of learning that aren't book learning, But he didn't, I think, see that we play not just at things that we want to become, but also at things that we're afraid of or trying to figure out. So I think that if he had had a a broader and I think more correct sense of the function of play, he would have seen that there might be a more benign purpose to the kind of playing at many things that I think is part of what it is to engage with literature not because we want to be many things, but because we somehow need to play at being many things to get a handle on the variety that does exist in the world. Gabriel Richardson-Lear, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you so much. To listen to future episodes of Elucidations, you may consult our website at philosophy.uchicago.edu slash podcasts.